Welcome to the Feisty Women's Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Gross, Ironman champion, PhD in women's history, and founder and CEO of Feisty Media. I started this show because I wanted to cut through the BS of diet culture and fitness culture and actually learn from high achieving women at the top of their game who have figured out how to feel and perform their best at every stage of life. So I chat with experts, elite athletes, and leaders who have learned to succeed despite the massive gender data gap in exercise and medical science and product development. Every episode is filled with information, advice, and anecdotes that will help you fulfill your potential as an athlete, mom, leader, or business owner. And listen up. If you don't subscribe to our women's performance newsletter, you are definitely missing out. It's totally free. So head over to womensperformance.com and subscribe now. That's womensperformance.com. This podcast is a production of Feisty Media. Hi, Feisties. I'm so excited for this week's episode. My guest is a multiple world champion from a sport I know almost nothing about. And I learned so much from her in just under an hour. I can't wait to share it. I actually met this guest about a year and a half ago through a mutual friend. And then I saw her recently at a women's sports event in Tempe ahead of the Outspoken Summit. So I was so glad to bump into her again so I could ask her to come and join us on the podcast. Her name is Rhonda Rasick, and she is the most decorated racquetball player in history. She's a two-time world champion in women's singles, a Pan-American champion six times, four times in the singles and twice in the doubles. She is a U.S. Open champion four times, and she was the number one player on the Ladies Professional Racquetball Tour for four seasons. So the first thing I had to learn from Rhonda, and I had to ask her to excuse my ignorance, is just all about what racquetball is. And honestly, it sounds like I've been missing out on like the most fun ball sport (laughs) ever. Um, So if anyone wants to come and play racquetball with me, I'm really keen to try. I also took a deep dive with Rhonda about growing up with her perfectionist father who really pushed her in sports and how that has helped her become a champion, but also when that perfectionism turns to negativity and how she copes with that. We talked about gender, how gender inequality shows up in her sport in sponsorship and prize money, but also what it's like to do a sport like racquetball in the U.S. uh, when your sport isn't one of the big four. And then near the end of the episode, please stay as long as this because Rhonda talks about what she learned after she was attacked and almost killed while walking near her home in California and the mindset that has not only made her a world champion, but that also saved her life. Rhonda, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited. I feel like we've kind of been meaning to get in touch for many years and it's finally happening. It feels that way. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it is. It's been a while. It's been a while. Yeah, it has. So, okay, I need to start. We need to start because, you know, a lot of our audience will be endurance athletes. um, And I know a little bit about racquetball, but like, could you just tell us exactly what racquetball is? (laughs) Sure. Uh, it's obviously played with a racket and a ball um, mm-hmm. in an enclosed uh, four wall 
uh, court is indoor. There is also several variations of outdoor racquetball, but to keep it simple, you play in a 20 by 40 by 20 box, uh, essentially okay. made of either concrete panel glass or some combination of all three. Um, or, I mean, for example, we have an entirely glass portable court that is erected for our U S open, um, mm -hmm. each year. So, um, generally speaking, you want to hit the ball where your opponent can't get it. Uh, it's got to hit the front wall first. Uh -huh. You can only, you only get one bounce and you got to keep it in play. Um, that's, that's the most basic way to describe it. It is one of the fastest sports on the planet with the ball traveling up to speeds of almost, if not 200 miles an hour at the pro level. Um, so you don't have a lot of time to think you have, you barely have time to react. So you kind of have to, as far as the rehearsal of where the ball is going to be and what you're going to do with it, you've got to, um, you've got to be ready for anything. And then you've got to let your body just respond. Yeah. So it's, uh, you, you, you don't have time to think it, it, this game is too fast and it's, you don't, you just don't have time to think. So as I understand it, there's basically, you're hitting a ball and it's bouncing off of all four walls. Basically. Well, no, not all four walls. I mean, you're, okay. you're going to hit when, when you hit it. Okay. The only time you actually have to hit the front wall first is on a serve. The okay. rest, once the ball is in play, it can hit any of the other walls first, as long as it hits the front wall before the floor. If it hits the floor first, it's called a skip and the rally is over. That's basically like hitting it into the net in tennis, right? Okay. Plays over. Yeah. But otherwise, as long as, as long as it hits the front wall before the floor at any point in the rally, it doesn't matter how, how, I mean, it can hit the ceiling and then the front wall, it could hit, it could literally hit every wall first and then the front wall. As long as it doesn't hit the floor first, it's still in play. I'm just thinking this sounds like the most fun thing ever. And why have I never done it? <laughs> yeah. Why haven't you done it? Why haven't why you done have it? I not done? How did you get into racquetball? Uh, my parents joined a health club when I was two and they stuck me in the nursery and I figured out how to sneak out. And honestly, until I actually started, you know, having some success and doing interviews and things like this. And I always get asked that question, how'd you get started? I think actually both of my parents assumed like my dad thought my mom was taking me, mom at, my, my mom was taking me out of the nursery and my mom thought my dad was taking me out of the nursery, but I was actually, I figured out if I put one of the, remember those wooden building blocks that, with the letters and the numbers on them, you know, that yeah. you can stack up figured out if I put one of those in the door while another parent brought their kid in, I could use my hands to then pull the door open and sneak out while they were checking the new kid in. Cunning <laughs> and athletic. <laughs> I know funny. I was too, such a little, such a little heathen it too. But my father was actually just getting started playing racquetball. My, my godfather was teaching my dad how to play racquetball and, you know, they were here playing in a, you know, little morning group every day. And my mom would do her thing or play, uh, play tennis with my godmother or do aerobics or something. And, um, you know, I'd find a way to sneak out and I'd go and kind of wander the gym and find where, what court my dad was playing racquetball on. I'm like, Oh, okay. There he is on court four. And then I would go down to the basketball court, grab a basketball. And I would just kind of eyeball my dad's court until he was done. And then I would run up the steps and steal his racket and run on the court and hit it around a little bit. And, you know, they're on their break, whatever between games. And then he's like, okay, kid, give the big people the racket back. What are you doing out here? Where's your mother? You know, and I would just run back down to the basketball court which is essentially what I've done with my life. I mean, I actually intended to be a professional basketball player. And even to this day right now, I'm infinitely better at basketball than I am at racquetball. And I'm one of the best in the world at racquetball. Um, so uh, I, I played basketball all through school. I had a full ride to a D1 school. And then kind of right at that end of college-ish timing, I accidentally qualified for the adult U.S. team 
for the first time in racquetball. I had been on the junior U.S. team since I was about 12. Um, but uh, once once I create once I actually made it onto the adult team, I was like, "All right, cool. I'm on the adult team." Well, just happened to coincide at the same time. About six months later, after that, there was a meeting at national doubles where you know, the leadership came together and they invited every woman who was, in, who was entered into that tournament into a meeting. And they're like, women's racquetball isn't dying. It's dead. We're going to start up a whole new pro tour. We're going to have a new logo. We're going to have new leadership. We have a three-year contact where we will support half the prize money so that, um, you know, trying to entice tournament directors to get us on their schedule. And instantly, I believe the women's pro tour went from four or less pro stops a year to a minimum of eight that happened every year. Um, and then very shortly after that, well, we, we had a gimmick though. We, we actually went to ping pong scoring. Five serves each, everyone scores a point like on rally scoring. And that was our gimmick to kind of get butts in the seats. And it worked. We played uh-huh. three out of five games to 21. Was, that was scored differently than the men's. That was scored differently than the men's, yeah. The men's was scored. The Pro Tour had always been scored three games out of five to 11, must win by two. Okay. And um, on the amateur level, you play two out of 15 with a tiebreaker to 11 win by one. Uh-huh. Okay. So that was, that was all of, that was, that was how it was scored back in that time when I, when I was in that basketball or racquetball adjustment period. Um, and like, I mean, basketball was my focus. Obviously I played all the time at school. I played after school. I lied to my parents and told them I was failing a class when I wasn't so that they would have to drop me off at school two hours early so that I could actually have two extra hours of court time. Like, I'm pretty sure that my, I had all A's and I was lying to my parents on, no, I have to redo this assignment. Oh, I have to retake this test. Oh, the, the scantron didn't scan right. I have to go redo it. Like I, I made up every excuse in the book so that I could be taken to school early. So I could, and it was an outside court, just a concrete slab with a, with a hoop. That's incredible. Like you were like the Michael Jordan of <laughs> like, just like there doing hours and hours and hours. Did So if you had said, I want, I'm, I'm going to practice, like they would, that wouldn't have been enough to drop you off early. Like it had to be an academic reason. Is that? I mean, yeah. I mean, my, so my parents divorced when I was five and um, when I would be with my dad, like sports was, sports was our language. That is what we had in common. That was, you know, so central to his life. I'll give you some family history here in a minute, but um, you know, it was no big deal for me and my dad to go to the gym at five o'clock in the morning. And it wasn't him making me go. A lot of people blasted him. They're like, why are you doing that to her? She's only seven years old. She's like, she wants to go. No, I did. I, I would wake him up. Be like, no, I don't want to skip today. Let's go. <laughs> like, I want to go to the gym before school. Um, but my, my mom, not so much. Um, and then as I got older, you know, into, into school and everything, because my parents were divorced and they didn't ever really lived in the same part of town, rather than me switching schools all the time, if somebody moved, I just stayed within the same school system. So that I was never, I never lived very close to the school I attended. Right. That said, you know, I, I can't just go walk or ride my bike to school. I have to be driven. So, Hey, I want to go shoot this morning. Can you take me to school early? No, I'm sleeping in. I got to work all day. No, I no. <laughs> hey, I have to retake a test. Why are you failing so many tests? Like, um, <laughs> well, let me go get back to you on that. <laughs> so, um, but it, Real quick family history. My, my father was the oldest of five boys. All of them played professional something at some point. Um, my father was the oldest. He played a couple of years of pro baseball and semi-pro basketball. His next 
oldest brother, Michael Tim, also played a couple years of pro baseball and then settled down and did the family thing and became the top taxidermist in the state for several years uh, up in Flagstaff. Mm -hmm. uh, then my uncle David was a pitcher, won a World Series ring with the Yankees. Uh, my uncle Gary, um, phenomenal hitter and outfielder. Uh, he won a World Series. He has a World Series ring with uh, the, the Red Sox. And then my uncle Robbie actually still holds the record for the longest punt at the University of Miami, kicked for the Chargers for a minute, and then became a professional golfer. So I kind of came out of the womb with these lofty expectations and discipline and all the things. My father was also a colonel in the army by the time he retired. So um, discipline, routine, um, hard work, dedication, all, 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 the, all the platitudes that you see on the motivational posters yeah. was, was just sort of expected in, in my house. It was just sort of expected that, that that's, that's how this family, that's, that's, that's what we do. That's how, that's how we live. So. And are there, do you, are there pros and cons to that? Like, obviously a pro is your, the level of success you've, you've achieved in sport. Um, but what were that, what were the upsides and downsides of that kind of expectation? I mean, I think, I think, and again, I think this is a pro and a con actually, um, there's certainly days now that I'm grateful for it, but when I was in the middle of it, it was, it was definitely a con. I hated it. It was the, the, the expectation of perfection. Mm. My father, my father, he loved, he loved numbers and keeping stats and writing everything down. And so he would keep stats in the, in the um, stands of our basketball games in junior high and high school. And he would even keep track of missed assists, wherein I'd make a great pass, but if my teammate missed the shot, I lose the assist. Right. Oh, yeah. And, and he would, he would get upset with me. You had more missed assists tonight than you had made assists. I'm like, why is that on me? I got the ball where it was supposed to go. Yeah. But I mean, I, I, I set a state record for steals and I, I played, I think I, that was a game that we happened to beat our opponent like 97 to 14. And our coach wouldn't let us shoot the ball anymore because he didn't want us to get to hundred. He didn't want us to demoralize the other team that way. And I'm, I'm just, again, from probably from my upbringing and maybe somewhere in my DNA, I'm like, step on their throat. <laughs> Let's go. Let's get a hundred. Like, <laughs> yeah, there, it's not like if we score 97 instead of a hundred, they're going to catch up, you know, like, I, and, and I don't mean to sound like a jerk, but um, you know, the starters in that game, because this, because of what the score was, this, this poor team, um, the starters played, I think half the game, we played a total of 16 minutes and I had 15 steals. I mean, it was just, it was just one of those games, but, um, you know, the, the, the pro and the con of that expectation was that, you know, you're always trying to deliver. You're always trying to meet that standard. Mm -hmm. You're always, you're always chasing that line. That's all always moving. It seems the, the con is feeling like you're never good enough. I mean, there was, there was, if I, if I didn't play a perfect game, have a triple double and set one or two records for something. It was like, he was disappointed in me. I felt like I could never live up to that level of perfection that he expected from me every game. And that, that, that weathered me in, in quite a few um, ways and situations in, in especially my teenagers. I mean, that's just a natural time to have friction with your parents. But um, when you're, when you're constantly feeling like you have to prove yourself, to the one person who's, whose approval you're, you're seeking. Um, and, and you just never seem to get it. And it was frustrating because on the other hand, like I would hear him talk about me to other people 
Mm-hmm. And what he would say, like he would, he would think I walked on water because if he was, he was so congratulatory, he was so full of adoration and, you know, but, but, you know, privately to me, um, a lot of our conversations felt devastating to me because it, it, it was never enough. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, like I said, I, I, I always felt like I was coming up short, but again, now looking at, looking at my body of work as an athlete, my entire life. Um, I actually am thankful for that now, but I also think that I, I have had the, um, the good fortune, if you will, of mentally being able to absorb that for what it was instead of seeing it for what it wasn't, like I felt it back then. Building muscle can be tough and gains can be so slow, even for those of us who do a lot of strength training. As an ex-endurance athlete who is now in perimenopause, I know this all too well. It can be frustrating to put in the time in the gym and not see the results I'm looking for. That's why it's super important to take the right supplements at the right time. One of those supplements is essential amino acids, which are needed to trigger muscle protein synthesis. Muscle protein synthesis happens when you eat high quality protein like eggs or whey. And by supplementing with additional essential amino acids, you can make sure you are getting the full benefit of your training sessions. Targeted essential amino acid formulas can be up to four times more effective than just eating protein. I've been taking amino acids for almost a year and in combination with eating quality protein and a couple other supplements, I have managed to turn the tides on age-related muscle loss, which starts at 30 for women by the way, and I have continued to make strength gains as I head towards 50. AminoCo has been a longtime sponsor of Feisty Media and has supported all of our brands and podcasts over the years. I recommend starting with AminoCo Perform, and you can grab some at aminoco.com forward slash performance. If you enter the code performance, you will save 30% and receive a free gift if it is your first purchase. Give it a try and let me know how it goes. That's aminoco.com forward slash performance and use the code performance to save 30%. As a lifelong runner and triathlete turned CrossFitter, I am stoked to announce that the athletic eyewear brand Tafosi Optics has joined us as a partner here at Feisty Media. Tafosi sports glasses hit all the marks for athletes. They're shatterproof poly bicarbonate, so the lenses not only reduce glare, but also offer scratch resistance, which I 100% need. They stay in place when you are moving. The hydrophilic rubber nose pads actually get more grippy the more you sweat. So they are secure and don't slide down your face even when you're running in hot conditions. No matter what sport you do, Tafosi has shades for you. Whether you love tennis, fishing, pickleball, running, cycling, or just hanging out on the beach. They are super reasonably priced, which I love, so I can have multiple pairs that go with any outfit. And of course, feisty listeners get a special discount. So head on over to tofosioptics.com and use the code FM20. FM as in feisty media to get 20% off your order. That's FM20 at tofosioptics.com. I'll put a link in the show notes to make it easy for you.
you know how do you yeah I I do know what you mean as an adult now that's what I was going to ask like as an adult now with that very big con of the expectation and not always feeling good enough how do you deal with do those voices sometimes still creep up in your head or how do you deal with that absolutely I remember when um when a opponent slash um tour mate of mine asked me one one time after you know a pretty tough loss at a tournament she asked me she goes do you feel like your self-worth is tied to how you perform on the court and it was like it was kind of like this knife through my heart like oh how do you why are you calling me out like that like i i mean obviously i never really thought of it that way but I mean, I would say 100% I did to a very large degree. Like, objectively, I could be like, no, of course not. But witnessing how I felt within myself every time I failed to meet my own expectations, of course I feel like if I, if I, didn't, if I, if I can't even live up to myself, of course I'm letting my, my parents down, my you know, support system down. Like, I failed, I failed to meet the standard that, that I have set for myself, let alone what they've set. So, um, yeah, that was, that was a, a very agonizing question when I got it. And, and there were a lot of times after a lot of matches, win or lose, where I would consciously bring that up and ask myself, like, am I feeling some sort of way based on an outcome? Yeah. And I think, you know, we, what we have seen in a lot of um, our athletic communities, too, is uh, women who associate how they, they look or like having a certain body type as an athlete, as being that, like where we apply that perfectionism to those things. Like, I think it's like your story is very relatable. Like if you, if that voice comes into your head, do you have things that you tell yourself so that you can keep focusing on? Like, obviously you want to keep winning, right? You want to keep the good parts um, of that kind of motivation, but like, how do you get rid of the negative voices? Um, Well, I mean, the windshield is bigger than the rearview mirror for a reason. I mean, it, it doesn't hurt to look back and, and see what I've done, but like, I've never Googled myself. I've never Googled, my, like, I've never Googled myself. I never will. I Googled you yesterday. <laughs> well, I hope it was accurate. <laughs> um, but I, I, I mean, as far as what I've done, I know that I've won everything there is to win multiple times. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've, I've got it, but it's not, it's not the number of titles that I have. It's that I want to be I want to continue to get better like I know that I'm still improving in things like mm-hmm. I've literally been playing my whole life and I've never I've never actually burned out and people ask that's another question I get a lot in interviews like how can you play for so long and not burn out and I'm like because I still love what I do mm-hmm. like I I I enjoy the I enjoy the process I enjoy the gym I enjoy I enjoy when I have a really tough workout and I'm sore for a couple of days. I'm like, yeah, I'm sore, but that's good sore. You know, I love that. I, I, I like that because that's, that's an indication of progress to me. Yeah. Um, I like going to practice and charting my, my drills and Hey, I got nine out of 10 today. Yesterday I got seven, like it's coming, it's getting there. I also, um, I do a lot of, you were talking about side hustles earlier. I do a lot of, you know, coaching and training as well. And I enjoy when I'm giving someone a lesson or I'm, demonstrating something at a camp or something and I'm trying to I can show them how to do it right and then I'm like you're doing this and this is what I need you to do can you see the difference like when they can see it for themselves it's different right but I love when I when I get in there and I'm trying to demonstrate something that I used to do and I can't do it wrong anymore 
I'm like, God, I can't even hit it. I can't even hit a bad shot. Like it's, <laughs> it's so automatic. And that's one of the quotes I tell, you know, my students, I'm like, don't practice till you get it right. Practice till you can't get it wrong. Right. And when I, when I can see those, when I can see those progressions in myself, I'm like, I couldn't even do this wrong if I tried to, to demonstrate it wrong. Like that's, I take that as a great sign of improvement. And even when I watch video, like I remember when I, that I just picked up that serve right before this tournament and I tried it and I didn't hit a single one. Everyone was more short. And now this tournament from last weekend, I'm watching it and I'm doing that. I'm throwing that serve in like, like I've had it all along, you know, like being able to, to see those, those progressions and, and see that improvement, that, that chase of, I know that I still have room to grow as a player and I am still making strides in that direction. Two reasons, two reasons I would, I would completely be done with racquetball altogether. One, it's not fun anymore mm-hmm. because it's a game. I feel that way about all sports. If, if it's a game and it's supposed to be fun. If it's not fun, you're doing it for the wrong reasons. Mm. Not fun. Fun should absolutely be a component of, of sport in my opinion. And I think a lot of, I think a lot of parents kind of suck the joy out of sport for their kids way too early these days. And, and they're trying to specialize their child in something when they're five, like let them play everything till they're at least 12 or 13 and then let them pick what's fun for them and then go be a badass at that. Um, but it's, it's, it's being able to enjoy what you do. And the only other reason I would, I would be completely done with racquetball is if I see that like, all right, this, this is as far as I'm going. Like I'm actually not getting any better anymore. Mm-hmm. I might not be getting worse, but I'm not getting any better. I'm not, I'm charting my progress and my numbers aren't moving. So there's nothing more that I can do to be any different or better than I was before. And I, like, I, I, not saying that I'm an expert in anything, but I've, I've run out of room in growth and, and there's nothing more for me to earn. Yeah. I love that. Imagine if we applied that to other things in life, like our careers, for example, like, are you having fun? Right. Or how could I make whatever X fun again? Right. And then also like, am I improving or is there a space to grow into? And if there's no more space to grow into, that could be it need for change I kind of love that yeah um okay when we, when we met I, I don't know how many weeks ago now time is like a, <laughs> a strange thing to me right now but I remember talking a little bit about um equal pay or unequal pay in your sport I I just love to get like I know you know I'm very familiar with endurance sport but I just love to like hear a little bit about um as a woman doing a pro racquetball player like how are you paid compared to the men can we unpack that a little bit? So sponsorship wise, it's, it's, that, be, that, that has become a harder question to answer only because the circumstances that are, I'm mostly familiar with are for the U S players mm-hmm. and we make, we make crap. I mean, sponsorship wise, we make crap. If you Googled me, then hopefully it's accurate. And, and you, you can see, you know, some of the things that I've done. And I had a sponsor just last year offer me a sponsorship for $1,500 for the whole year. And this is a racquetball manufacturer sponsor. And that, that was what they were willing to offer. I'm like, that is not going to get me through the expenses of one single tournament. And you want me to stretch that across a year's worth of playing plus my living expenses, plus God forbid, I have a flat tire or, you know, something like that. Like, it's <laughs> <clears throat> Anyway, um, so, but in the meantime, if you're an elite racquetball player in another country, most of them 
um, I can't speak for all of them, but for example, Mexico has a very, very, they, they get government support. Their pros and national team members get government support. Team Canada has a great, or at least had at one point, I don't, I'm not, I'm not totally familiar with Canada's inner workings of their national stuff now, but I know that at one point, like they were, if you, if you made the Canadian national team, mm-hmm. you would get your training expenses paid for, you get your cell phone paid for, obviously all, anything medical, um, you would get bonuses throughout the year, not just for the international competition, but if you made it to a certain round or won a pro stop, you know I mean? Like there was all these huge incentives. I think even your living expenses or a portion of them, at least like your, your rent or, or food or something, you know, was, was paid for. And through the Federation. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and I remember um, at our Pan Am games in Guadalajara in 2011, the Venezuelan men's doubles team made it to the semis. And just for making it to the semis, they got destroyed in the semis. But just for making it to that round, those two gentlemen both got a new house, a new car, and 75000 the equivalent of 75000 US dollars. Wow. Um, I know that, that uh, Mexico's top, top players are, I mean, literally one of them is, is probably like basically LeBron. She's basically LeBron in Mexico. Right. Oh. I mean, she, she, she has to, you know, she has to have security if she goes out. She, she endorses all kinds of products. She's on commercials. She's, she's co-hosting, you know, sporting events um, from, from, from field, the field side of the field. Um, you know, like what, whatever it is. I mean, she's, she is basically, you know, the mega superstar because um, I mean, we have the big, we have football, baseball, basketball, and even hockey, right? We'll throw those four out there. Mm-hmm. They have, they have soccer. And if they have another athlete who is elite at that level and a world champion and, and all of those things, they celebrate the hell out of them. We don't do it because it's not one of those, those four sports. Right. And then you add in the fact that you're talking about women, not men. Now all of a sudden it. I, I don't know if you were there for this part of the uh, the summit, if you were there when I mentioned this, but um, years ago, I was sponsored by a company and I was kind of their number one, their number one female player that they sponsored and the number one male player that they sponsored. My contract was that if I finished ranked number one in the world at the end of the pro season, my bonus was $6,000. If I finished number two in the world, I think my bonus was $3,000. His bonus for doing the exact same thing for, for finishing the pro season number one in the world was $300,000. So if you want to talk about the disparity in pay, it is significant. 300 compared to six is a lot. That is a large jump. And is at, at your tournaments, just so I understand, like is the, the media coverage, and I'm not saying that like, because these things tend to be tied together, right? It's like, if we can get more media coverage for women's sports, then the, the contracts tend to get bigger for the athletes. Like, are you at the same tournaments with the same media coverage? Or do we also need to kind of shift the amount of media coverage of the women's side as well? So that's, that's, that's an interesting point. Because currently, I would, I would go out and say that the women's tour is more is functionally, functionally more successful than the men's as far mm-hmm. as um, but the, the prize money is not equal. Actually, for the very first time, and this was actually Connor Shane's doing. Yes. For the very first time, the prize money was equal at the, this year's U.S. Open. Right. And that's the first time that's ever happened um, at any tournament that I'm aware of. 
and I've been playing for, you know, 179 years now. So um, <laughs> I've seen a few, few events. Uh, but the, um, like I said, it's, it's hard to say prize money wise, because I think the men's prize money is still in general, a higher amount at, as a baseline. Like if ours is 20,000, that's a grand slam. Our, I think our, our tier one minimum is 12. If they include um, doubles, it tends to be around 15 or maybe it's 15 and 18, something like that. So I, I just try to like, you just connect the dots here, right? So that would be a turn, that would be tournament prize money where they're having a men's and women's tournament at the same time. That prize money's, I'm guessing, brought in by sponsors, right? You, largely. Um, and then you would have, you know, equal, potentially equal media coverage of those events. Well, that, that's, that's what I was getting at is that, you know, the men's and women's pro tours don't always, we're not always at the same place at the same time. That's at the, that's at the U S open. And it, it very rarely, because if you think about it, one tournament is going to have to generate enough prize money to cover both tier one events or, or grand slam road. That said, I don't, I don't know what the highest um, amount for a men's stop is beyond a tier one. I mean, maybe it's, I mean, I'm sure they've had extra, but like, I'm pretty, I, I know for a fact, the highest prize money we've ever had as a women's pro tour um, is $60,000. And that came from one single sponsor at a tournament in Kansas. And he's, he's had, he started it. He started it as um, like a, I want to have a women's pro stop. Okay. Well, here's what it is for a tier one. Great. Um, before that tournament was over, he pulled my tournament director aside and said, I want to lock in the dates again for next year. And I want to double it. And it went from 15,000 to 30,000 before the end of that tournament, that second year, he pulled the tournament director aside again and said, I want to lock in my dates. I like, I like this time of year and I want to double it. She's like, but, but it's 30. He's like, yeah, double it. She's like, that's 60. He goes, I can add. <laughs> He's like, I know. <laughs> and this is all just coming out of his own. This is his own love for the game and love for, you know, his, his wanting to have the women come to his city, his, his club, his area and do, um, you know, put on the, the biggest event that the LPRT has ever seen. And he has, and I mean, bless him for, you know, doing that. And, and, and naturally that, that tournament has such a great turnout. I mean, you might have some international players that don't make every event through the whole season, but if they're going to go to one, that's the one they go to because even, you know, the, the prize money breakdown is just so beneficial in, in, you know, beyond any, any other event for the rest of the year. So it's, it's one of those, um, and it's one of those things where, you know, the prize money for that event is significantly more than a men's event that I'm aware of, but it's that just that one, just the one, it's just that one. And as far as, you know, bonuses or, um, bonuses or, uh, you know, endorsements or all those other things, again, it's so different for the players that are not from the U S right again, because they're not competing with the big four in this country. Like we are like, they're, they're literally on their country's version of ESPN. Um, so it's the inequality is still definitely there. And like, for example, at, at tournaments such as the U S open, um, it's not equal time on the show court. Mm-hmm we don't get equal time on the show court and it sucks because the men have their, they'll have their handful of opening rounds on the show court. They'll, they'll be on the show court as of Wednesday. 
we don't tend to get on that show court until Saturday. The finals are Sunday, you know, and it's not an easy court to play on. The way the lighting is, like I said, it's a portable all-glass court. The way that there's, I think, two, at least two, maybe three different kinds of lighting mm-hmm. um, around the edge of this court. And you've got to find the ball. And they make us play with a, a dark-colored ball. Mm-hmm. And it's all glass. And of course, it's brighter inside the court than it is outside the court. So as soon as that ball drops into a corner, it's, it turns into where's Waldo. And then <laughs> you're, trying not to, you're trying not to, you know, swing your racket into the glass because, oh, I didn't know I was that close. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's just the inequalities are still there. Um, I don't know if you were here for it or if you're still at the summit for it or not, but I, I have this uh, lottery dream. Can I tell you this? Oh yeah, you did. But say it again. Go for it. I have this lottery dream of you know if I if I had you know the Mega Millions and, and uh, I had I had a large amount of money to play with, I would hold the most Super Bowl experience like pro stop ever. Men and women would of course be invited, but the prize money for the women would be five million dollars, and the prize money for the men would be one million because they're so used to getting top prize money, and they and they actually had the audacity to complain when the prize money was actually just equal at this last U.S. Open. And so in, in my situation, my lottery situation, I would be like five, 5 million prize money for the women, 1 million prize money for the men. And for every complaint I hear from a man about it, it goes down $100,000. And by the way, you don't have to come. You don't <laughs> have to even be invited. I don't have to have the men. I don't have to, I don't need the men at this tournament to make it a success. Yeah. Guess what? For the first time, it's not about you guys. Deal with it. The, welcome to every pretty much until this last year was open. Welcome to every single tournament we have ever played right. where we are always the second class citizens. How does it feel? And it's not, it's not the player's fault. It's not, but, but for, you know, for, for the players to have to experience that the way that we do every time for their leadership to have to experience that the way we do every single time for them to not have priority on the show court every single time. Yeah. Can you understand why? We are so, if you want to call us bitchy about the inequality, it's because it hasn't changed and it needs to. Yeah. I think that, I I think there's a lot of value in even getting, even you saying that and repeating that, you know, like that getting people to do the mental gymnastics of actually putting themselves into your shoes or into women's shoes in sport. Like, I think it's super helpful. Um, You also said something that like, I I feel like we could talk, we could keep talking forever, but I want to make sure to get to this one because you said something like you have a story, you were talking about public speaking and that you have a story that you think will inspire a lot of people and you feel like you need to share that. Can you give us a little like Cole's notes on on what that is? Give you the teaser trailer? (laughs) Yeah, the teaser trailer. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So kind of at the, at, at the peak of my coming into you know, being ranked number one in the world. Um, I, I, I've been on the pro tour for 22 years. I, I have been ranked um, literally up until recently because I haven't played a single pro stop this season yet. So I lost my points, but up until this season specifically, I was ranked number one in the, in the world for four years in a row. I was ranked in the top three since my rookie season, even after I fell to number two. I mean, I maintained number two for nearly a decade. Um, and up until this last season, I've been, I've literally been in the top 10 my entire career, basically until I, until I 
have skipped some tournaments this season. By the way, the reason I've skipped is because I'm really trying to focus on the speaking. And I'm also writing a book that um, I went out and publicly said it's going to be available by the end of the spring. So got to okay, get back on that. Soon. Yep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so um, I'm really trying to get the speaking off the ground. And it just got to a point where, and I've, I've, I've been doing speaking. I've been doing speaking for, you know, 16, 18 years. I mean, as, as an athlete before this event happened and I will get to that and forget, I will get to that. Um, but you know, when I, when I started getting a lot of, of speak and I, but it's all just kind of fell into my lap. I've never actually pursued it. And I had this grand idea of pursuing it. I'm like, I know I'll just schedule speeches in every city that I have a pro stop in playing a couple of days early, stay a couple of days late, bam, speaking in tournament all at the same time. I can, I can totally do this. Not that that's not possible, but it's not like, hey, I'm in Boston. Who needs a speaker? You know, it doesn't work that way. So, um, so it, it just, it became difficult. I, I couldn't figure out how to execute that. I couldn't figure out how to get things lined up at the time I needed to be there or didn't even know where to start or didn't know who to reach out to locally to see if there was any, anything that I could get booked type of a thing. It just became um, a great idea that I didn't know how to execute. And then, um, you know, I started, I started getting... I've probably done over 50 speeches and I didn't say probably half paid, half unpaid. And I had two very um, profound experiences with, with very different audiences, three actually. And um, it, it just kind of made me realize that this event that, that happened is a new platform for me to speak from, not just as a professional athlete. I mean, I think maybe pro athlete at the top of my one pager is, is a, it's an, it's the attention getter but I'm not speaking from the perspective of the pro athlete and, and that experience. I'm speaking from the humanity experience of this event that happened to me, what I learned from it, and hopefully what I am able to share with others can help them without them having to go through something like that in order to learn what I learned. And so there's a buildup and here's what happened. Um, I was living in Hermosa Beach at the time. I was walking on the strand and I got jumped from behind by two guys with brass knuckles. They shattered the right side of my face. My eyeball almost fell out. I took 10 to 15 shots to my face and head with brass knuckles from behind, but I was never unconscious and I was never off my feet. I turned around and I squared up. They didn't hit me again, um, but there were some words exchanged. And in the meantime, while this is happening, I can kind of feel this eye just starting to close and I can't see out of it. So I think they freaked out probably because I was, I, I turned around and squared up. Um, I didn't, uh, I, I didn't, I wanted to hit back, of course. Like as soon as I turned around, of course I wanted to defend myself. Yeah. But my immediate thought was that I have the world championships in six weeks and I don't want to break my hand on your dumb, stupid face and not be able to hold my racket and go compete for my country. Yeah. So when that happened, um, they didn't really know what to do, I think. And they kind of took off running. And I didn't want, this actually happened right on the strand, right in front of my home, my, the property that my wow. upstairs apartment was on. Yeah. And rather than just walk straight there, I was going to walk on the strand back out around to the Redondo Hermosa border and come back around and then go, go up my stairs on the, on the Hermosa side of the property, the Hermosa Avenue side. And I started to walk away and I'm walking home like this and I heard something and it was one of the two guys coming back at me and running at me with his fist up, like he's going to Superman punch me. I'm standing there like this. and I'm like, dude, just stop, just stop. And I won't say what he said on this podcast because I'm trying to keep it PG, but uh, he basically threatened to kill me. And at that point I dropped my hands, made two fists. And I said, okay, then go ahead, go ahead. I'm right here. Kill me. 
And he just kind of looked me up and down and took off. And um, I mean, you hear fight, flight, or freeze. And I don't know what I did, but I'm assuming it should start with the letter F. But I did none of the above. I mean, I had the presence of mind not to hit back if I didn't have to. I didn't scream. I didn't cry. I didn't run for help. Um, I was never, I was, I, I never, I, know, I, I didn't, I didn't cower. I didn't beg. I didn't negotiate. I didn't, but at the same time, I had the presence of mind not to escalate if I didn't need to, you know, yeah. I had the presence of mind to my very first thought was world. My very first thought when I turned around and squared up was world. Um, so it, it's, there's a lot that I learned from that experience. Mm-hmm. And, and I did not know how bad my injuries were. I decided I, I went home, intended to go upstairs and look for, uh, you know, I'm like, God, I hope we have Advil at home. This is, this is going to be so sore in the morning. Never occurred to me to call the cops. I didn't know what it looked like either. Uh, the cops ended up getting called. The ambulance was there in what seemed like two and a half seconds. And they took me to the hospital, did a bunch of scans and found out that I had several facial fractures and I'm going to need a facial reconstructive surgery. I'm like, cool. <laughs> so I got jumped on June 1st. I had facial reconstructive surgery on June 11th. They were not going to let me go to Worlds. I threw an absolute fit. Um, I'm not going to go into how big of a fit and what happened because I want to save that for the speech. But I was able to, I was able to fight, I, I argue my way into keeping my spot on the team. And um, 64 days after getting jumped, 53 days after facial reconstructive surgery, and 29 days after voluntarily abandoning all pain medication against medical advice, I won the world championship without even going tiebreaker. I never lost a single game that tournament. Wow. And I was still 37 pounds underweight. This happened in June. I wasn't able to eat solid food till October. So there's a lot that I learned in, in, in a lot of areas of myself. Um, I was fully prepared. I was fully prepared for the comeback. I was not at all emotionally prepared for the outpouring of support that I got. I got my face shattered, didn't cry. I had a facial reconstructive surgery, didn't cry. I, you know, went through this whole process of, of healing and can't eat solid food, all, all these things. All, all the horrible things you can think about when you, you don't have half a face. Um, didn't cry. Came home from the hospital, saw that first bouquet of flowers sitting on the mm-hmm. on the doorstep with a card. Mm-hmm. I lost it. Mm-hmm. I lost it. When I found out how far and fast that wildfire of information had spread and people reaching out that I've never met, never heard of, didn't even know existed, but they were a fan from across across the globe, literally, in, in, in a country that doesn't even have racquetball courts. And they're sending me messages of support and cards and the number of the number of tournaments that were held, not just in the States, but even internationally that were held as fundraisers for me when I was in the hospital. Um, I was not, I was not emotionally prepared for that outpouring. And it was not to quote Bette Midler, but it was the wind beneath my wings really that, that, um, that propelled a lot of what I was able to do to to carry out that promise of winning worlds. Right. The so promise I, gonna, I made to myself. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask you is like what you attribute the, the, thing, the then success to, but it sounds like. Honestly, mindset. Mm-hmm. Honestly, mindset. I was never a victim. I was right. never a victim. The worst part of that entire experience for me was hearing my mother shriek at the other end of the phone when my girlfriend at the time had gone out the door and down the hall to make that phone call after the doctors came in to say, here's what, here's what's going on. This was after the scans. This was, this was 
minutes after she came in to say, you have several facial fractures. Your surgeons are going to come in here and talk with you about scheduling the surgery, blah, blah, blah. You're going to need a facial reconstruction. I'm like, she said it so matter of factly too. Like, oh, by the way, don't forget to pick up some milk. Like <laughs> she said it, she like just kind of breezed through. I don't even know if she stopped while she delivered that news and just kept walking. I'm like, whoa, 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 come again. <laughs> uh, run that by me again. Um, so it was, you know, hearing my mother's shriek to this day is something that I can't unhear. And my, as an only child, the firstborn of all my cousins and a child of divorce who, divorce or no divorce, literally I've, I've been my parents' whole world, my whole life. So um, knowing how that impacted them hurt. It hurt, that hurt me more than my, my facial issues hurt me more. That hurt me more knowing how devastated they were. My poor father, he, he heard the news secondarily. Um, remember that game operator, you say one thing in the circle. And by the time it gets to the end of the circle, it's something completely different than where it started. Yeah. Um, when, when that news father finally got to my father, um, the way he had heard it was that I was beaten to death by a, a, a whole gang of baseball bats and I was dead. So I can't imagine what, what he went through emotionally. <laughs> yeah. It just, it just, took on a life of its own, I guess. But anyway, both my parents flew out as immediately as they could. And, um, you know, the rest is history. But like I, I, like I said, I, I was never a victim. I was never, I, when I was on, when I, when the phone was handed to me after hearing my mother's shriek, I mean, I wasn't crying again, didn't cry. But when I, when I was on the, on the phone with her, um, she's, hysterical she can't even she can't even articulate words like she's just so hysterical and it, it broke my heart to hear her that upset because I know she's that upset just because she loves me that much mm-hmm. but I was like mom I'm fine and I really did believe that I wasn't trying to comfort her I'm just like hey this is how it is I'm fine at the end of the day I just took some shots to the face they didn't rape me they didn't rob me they didn't kill me I'm here I'm fine I'm gonna get fixed up I'm gonna go in worlds it's fine Literally, that's what I did. But um, the gift that keeps on giving is my my daily facial pain on a scale of one to 10 is constantly a 10 or worse. Even still now, you can feel it right now as we're talking. I had another I had another surgery last year. I am supposed to have another surgery before the end of this year. I haven't scheduled it yet because I don't want to. <laughs> it hurts. What's really interesting is that like you can't, and this might be tied into everything that you just said, but like you can't really tell from looking at you. Right. Like, and I know people who have had bad bike accidents and dealt with, you know what I mean? Like that maybe there is that physical, like that maybe your, your unwillingness to become the victim also like applies to how you look and present yourself. Well, and, and, you know, the biggest lesson I got from that experience is that nothing happened to you happened for you. Mm-hmm. Nothing happens to you happens for you. Mm-hmm. And I think if, if we could all learn to look through anything that happens in life or business or what have you, like if we could find a way to use that lens to look through things before jumping to the, the woe is me, the why me, the, you know, all the what ifs, the, all the, all the, all the bad mm-hmm. negative. I mean, it's, it's so easily to reflect. It's so easy to be reflexively negative. Mm-hmm. And, but if you can see things through the lens of this didn't happen to you, it happened for you. I got my face shattered. That happened for me. I'm in excruciating pain on a daily basis. That is my daily reminder of everything that I have to be grateful for. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's the greatest, it's the greatest gift that that experience gave me. And like I said, pro athlete, sure. But, and I don't even like to le- use the word survivor because I didn't, I didn't survive an attack. I lived through it. 
It's that those are two different things to me because I don't survivor makes it sound like some sort of improbability. Like, Oh my God, I can't believe I'm still here. Sure. I got my life threatened that night, but, but I am still here. I didn't, I didn't survive that. I, I live and I continue to live. That's, that's my take on it. I love that. Okay. I'm going to tell you this. If you ever have a tournament, in Victoria, Canada, if you would like to do a, a speaking engagement so we can hear this whole story yes. ahead, then yes, let do. me know. I will figure that out. For, I will help you figure that out. <laughs> Letting you know right now. I'm in. Okay. I'm in. Sign me up. Maybe. Sign me up. I, I still have 12 questions for you. So we're going to have to find another time to circle back on this. Um, but, I don't, but I definitely just want to leave on that story because that was so inspiring. And um, thank you for sharing it. Um, how do we continue to, I know you have a TikTok account that's blowing up, <laughs> which I now a follower of. Yes, the TikTok is blowing up. <laughs> how do we follow you and, and your journey? Okay, so the TikTok is... LaRonda2723. It's L-E-R-H-O-N-D-A-2723. Uh, my Instagram is just Rhonda Rasich. And I think Facebook is too. I was actually locked out of Facebook for like seven years and I just recently got back in. Uh, I think that's also just Rhonda Rasich. Okay. We will and I've got you. Twitter too, but I don't know if Twitter is going to live long enough for anybody to go on Twitter. <laughs> Who knows what's going to happen? Yeah. <laughs> we'll, yeah. We'll, we'll put all of those links into our show notes. Um, thank you so much for chatting today. Really appreciate you and your story and for sharing. Thank you. Endurance sports should be accessible to everyone, right? That's why we are so excited to be partnering with Motive. Motive is one of the fastest growing training apps in the world today with thousands of amateur athletes signing up every month and a nearly perfect 4.9 star rating in the app store. You are not a template and your training plan should not be either. Prepare for running races, triathlons, cycling events, duathlons, or swim runs, however your season schedule shapes up, and get training written by some of the best coaches in the world in each discipline who know what it takes to help amateur athletes reach their goal on race day. The app takes the training written by those experts and then creates the most optimal training plan for your schedule, abilities, and goals. Plus, the training is fully customized to your race schedule. How much you can train each week, your current abilities, and the goals you want to achieve in your race. You can use the app for free as long as you want or get all the upgraded features from the app for just $19.99 a month. But as a feisty listener, you can sign up at mymotive.com and use the code FEISTY for two months of full premium access. That's right, you get two months of premium for free. So you quite literally have nothing to lose. 
So head over to mymotive.com, M-Y-M-O-T-T-I-V.com and use the code FEISTY, F-E-I-S-T-Y. And on a personal note, I know the founder of Motive and he is driven to make triathlon and all endurance sports more accessible for the athletes who care about their performance, but who aren't quite ready for a full-time personal coach. If that sounds like you, definitely try the app for two months for free. You literally have nothing to lose. As we head into summer, rest and recovery are critical for improving sports performance, reducing stress, and living a long and healthy life. We should all invest in better sleep. So think about the thing you lay your head on for eight hours a night. If it's not exactly right for you, it can lead to needless tossing and turning, or worse, have you waking up with an unrelenting kink in your neck. My new Lagoon pillow has helped me improve my sleep immensely by pairing me with the performance pillow that has everything I need. So I personally was matched with the Otter pillow, shout out to Team Otter, which I love because it has a gentle cooling effect. And I was able to choose how much stuffing I wanted in it, which is super important to me because I'm doing a decent amount of CrossFit these days and my shoulders are kind of creaky. So having a pillow that is stuffed just to the right height keeps my neck and head in exactly the right position and comfortable for the entire night. And as of fall 2023, Lagoon launched their 100% Mulberry Silk pillowcases. It's cool to the touch, buttery soft, and great for your skin and hair. You've got to go check out this pillowcase if you want to feel great and look great every morning. Waking up for morning workouts has never felt better. I'm refreshed and pain-free thanks to my Lagoon pillow. To check it out for yourself, go to lagoonsleep.com forward slash performance and take the two-minute sleep quiz to find your perfect pillow match and then use the code PERFORMANCE for 15% off your first purchase. That's code PERFORMANCE at lagoonsleep.com forward slash performance, whole 15% off, and the link is in the show notes. You can just click through there. For decades, running shoes have been researched, tested, and designed for men. Brands have relied on the shrink it and pink it approach to sell male shoes to female customers. That's why we are so excited to be working with Hedas. Hedas designs athletic footwear for women that elevates performance, safety, and style. Hedas unlocks the science behind women's biomechanics through dedicated research, creates better shoes for women that support their longevity and performance, and establishes new design standards to promote transparency in a male-biased industry. Hedas have a lower ankle collar to reduce rubbing, a breathable mesh toe box to allow for ventilation and to allow for female toe shape, a special kind of plate in the midsole to keep tired legs going, a narrow heel cup to reduce heel slippage and take the pressure off our Achilles, and a rounded instep to create a snug fit. 
Hedes has three shoe models designed for different sessions, the Alma Cruise for long runs, the Alma Tempo for training days, and the Alma Speed for pushing the pace. I've personally been running in the Alma Cruise and I love them. It's the shoe I always wanted and never knew I needed. The fit is perfect in every way. You can get your own pair of Hedas at Hedas.com and use the code FEISTY20 for 20% off. That's FEISTY20 at Hedas.com and it will all be in the show notes.